0: Matthew chapter 4, which has a little bit of the feel of an odds and ends sort of passage, but interestingly, it's probably one of the major turning points in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, and again, I would remind you this is God's Word, it does not pass away. And the wisdom of the Spirit as he's written this, he had you in mind when he penned this in Matthew. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray again. Oh God, would you please give life and light that darkness would not reign in our hearts. Even now we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It's interesting thinking about the history books being written while we live. You know, what will the history books talk about of our experiences, of our lives, and the things that we walked through, the paths that we've enjoyed, again, as a child remembering the Berlin Wall coming down and talking with my parents, having no idea the significance of what that would mean, but knowing later, wow, that, that was a big deal. Interestingly, I think one of the most significant things in my lifetime, actually, certainly in my ministry and in the American church, is going to be one that's not talked about that much. Uh, Certainly not in the way that I think matches the impact that it has left. And I would say, suggest humbly, that COVID-19 is that situation. I suspect that COVID-19 will kind of be a blip in the history books certainly in comparison to the election coming in just a matter of weeks. But I suspect it's going to be one of the most important events of my lifetime and of my ministry, and interestingly, not because of the disease. Not because of the disease, right? COVID-19 is a, uh, a mutation of the SARS virus that's existed in the past. There will be another mutation coming in a handful of years, most likely four. <laughs> Significantly, though, I don't think it's going to be the disease that goes in the history books uh, or certainly has the lasting influence, but it's going to be the treatment. And by that, I don't mean the vaccine or whatever else medications they're using, but what we as a world have chosen to do to treat this pandemic. The treatment that we have chosen between the various uh, methods and all that they are, particularly I'm going to suggest that the isolation is the biggie. Just listen to some of the things that have happened uh, since March. The divorce rate in the United States of America between March and June was up 34%. For couples that got married in the five months prior to March, the divorce rate is over 20%. So you think about that. Out of all the marriages that took place in the five months prior to March, one in five of those is already divorced. To put that in perspective, that is more than double the normal divorce rate for the first five months of marriage. We are looking at a plague of divorce in the land. And, you know, it'd be one thing if we were saying, look, we're talking about a 34% increase from 0.001%. Well, that'd be terrible, but that's still pretty decent math. You know, though, the stats, and unfortunately we're talking about a 34% increase from like a 60% divorce rate. We're talking about a nation whose marriages are drying up and dying everywhere. Uh, suicide is actually increasing and is increasing in a rate that actually hasn't even fully been documented yet. We don't have all of the numbers in on it yet, but it's interesting. Do you know the age group that is struggling with COVID the most in terms of suicide? 18 to 24. 18 to 24. That is an amazing stat because that is the age bracket where literally every door is open to you. You, That's the age where you can literally pursue any sort of option you want to. You want to change your career? Great. You're young enough to do it. You want to go to school? Great. You're young enough to do it. You, You want to go travel and tour and learn about the world? You want to move countries? Great. You're young enough. You can do it with limited impact. I've been reading in the medical kind of side of the the psychology and and psychiatric medicine and such, and even the, the kind of just general pagan medical professionals are beginning to say, look, what we're actually confronting with right now, what we're dealing with right now, is a crippling... Long term damaging, destroying disease upon the mind of Americans. I read an article just this week where a psychologist was saying where we are actually dealing with like clinical problematic fear that is not going to go away the second the virus does. Uh, it's interesting, some of the things, that the one journal article I read the, uh, from a, a psychological journal, they were talking about what are the reasons, why is this having such an impact? What are these fears connected to? And here's the list they had. Economic worries, self-isolation, health concerns, separation from religious bodies, Social media and limited access to medical help. That brief list they're saying is contributing to a kind of just epidemic in our nation, not of COVID-19, but of, of mental health. I don't know if you saw, but even this last week, the CDC reported that more than 40% of American adults are on the brink of a mental breakdown, their mental health. They would themselves describe as broken, fragile, and not good. 40% of adults. Again, I referenced his lyrics a number of weeks ago, but John Prine, a famous American singer-songwriter who actually died of COVID-19 just a matter of weeks ago, his lyrics are beginning to sound a little bit wiser and a little bit better, though I don't think he would have ever described himself as a friend of the church or friend of the gospel. He wrote, I think it was in the late, early 80s, blow up your TV, throw away your paper, go to the country, build you a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try and find Jesus on your own. Okay, not on your own. Please go with the church. But he's actually, I think, really kind of diagnosed the American postmodern mind brilliantly. Right? We're watching a culture and a community that is eating itself with fear. Right When, when psychology today is saying, please turn off Facebook, please turn off Twitter, please turn off your television, please stop watching the news. It's destroying your mind. When they're saying it, man, you know there's a problem, right? And I, I think it's interesting what it is, and particularly if you look at this 18 to 24 age bracket, I, I think what's happening is, is for many Americans... This is the first experience, the first time where we've been forced to live within our own little kingdom, within our own little realm where we actually for the first time kind of get to be the the king of the world in which we survey. And we're finding out that we're not very good company. We're finding out that when I'm stuck in my own head for a long time, guess what? I don't really enjoy myself. And I think as a nation we're we're beginning to wrestle with this conversation of of, uh, when I get stuck having to deal with me, I don't like me. And What do I do with that? Then much less if you actually throw in any of the kind of realities of having to confront death I mean, we as Americans like to pretend that death doesn't exist. We've tried to remove death as much as we can from the home so that it always is removed out there and it, it exists in the abstract and, and never really gets processed in the concrete in, in my daily experience. And I, I think we're really watching our country have kind of like a mental breakdown. And I appreciate... The significance of that kind of for the church. Because what we're watching is, is a, a world that has, for really a number of decades, I would argue, really since 1969, we have been aggressive in this country saying, I am my own king, I am my own God, and you cannot tell me how I am supposed to live my life. I am my own king. And again, I think COVID-19 has been very helpful because it's, it's revealed to us that you're not a very good king. You do a very bad job at it. Matthew chapter 4, the end of it, I think is, is really a useful tool for us because it presents a contrast. Right? What, does, what does the kingdom of Michael look like or what does the kingdom of man look like? And how does that kind of compare to what the kingdom of Jesus Christ looks like? Again, Matthew has been telling the story of the king, and remember, that's a big deal to him as he frames out who this king is. He's why it starts in chapter 1 the way it does. We as Americans are like, oh, genealogy, who cares? He's telling the story. This is the high king of, of Israel. This is the king of the Jews. In fact, actually, this is the king that has been promised all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, even going all the way back to Genesis 3. This is the high king. Well, okay, I mean, he's king, but who cares? Well, uh, in fact, actually, uh, we really should care. There's a lot going on here. In fact, we're going to look at, there's four kind of attributes to this king's kingdom. You know, whereas mine might be characterized by, uh, you know, kind of neurotic fear or whatever, where I'm oh, all twitchy and such. What is his kingdom? What is it described like? What does it look like? well, First, his kingdom is for the conquered and the captive. It's for the conquered and the captive. So, all right, verse 12, we hear that John's been arrested. Now, interestingly, again, things that you just kind of don't think about in your brain. John's ministry only lasts about 18 months. Right? You probably didn't realize that, did you? You thought it as a really long-pictured kind of thing. He had about 18 months, and he does such an excellent job of ticking everybody off that he's arrested 18 months into his ministry. Jesus, at that point, picks up and moves, and he withdraws into Galilee. And again, recognizing that most of us don't have kind of excellent Bible geography in our brain, uh, this move from where he was to Capernaum is effectively like saying, Somebody had to leave Christ Ridge and they moved from Fort Mill to New Hampshire. Right? Now, granted, Israel's much smaller, but in terms of location within the country, this is a move effectively from Fort Mill to New Hampshire. Right? Bethlehem, uh, Jerusalem, it, it's on the southern end of the nation of Israel. Uh, where he's moving to Capernaum is the far north. In fact, actually, uh, we hear uh, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the most northern tribes. I think Dan is the only one that is further north than they are. So he's making a huge kind of transfer in where he lives. He's leaving the royal seat, so to speak, and moving to the far north. So that, Matthew explains, that Isaiah chapter 9, which we've already read, would be fulfilled. That the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, that those people who were dwelling in darkness would see a great light. And those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And many of us already have Handel's Messiah ringing through our minds, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, Uh, marvelous. Unfortunately, though, our Bible knowledge is so poor that we miss the significance of what's happening here. We get caught up on the, yay, he's bringing light to people who are in darkness. And praise God, that's an exciting thing uh, to be captured with. We, however, miss the significance of what Matthew's actually, the whole reason why he's referencing this. The whole reason why he brings in Isaiah 9 as a quote is to talk about Zebulun and Naphtali and the significance of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I'm like, well, okay, I don't know anything about Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, they're incredibly important, again, because they reside in the far north of Israel, but where they were located geographically was directly on the border with Assyria. And if you know your Old Testament history at all, you know the Assyrians were not exactly known for being friendly. In fact, actually they're known for being one of the most brutal nations in the history of the world. Their relationship with their gods was one of violence and murder. Their relationship with their neighbors was one of violence and murder. And in fact, actually, when the northern tribe falls and the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom, what tribes do they start with? Dan, Zebulun, and Naphtali. These are the, the tribes that would have been kind of symbolic and understood as being the ones who lived, in, in fact, actually where it talks about here, the shadow of death. They live in the shadow of death because Assyria is just north of them. mean this would have been the equivalent of having, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein as your backyard neighbor. Right? Do you let your kids go out and play in the backyard by themselves if you know he's the one living in your backyard neighbor? Probably not, right? Kind of known for being a bit murdery. We kind of don't want the kids playing out with the murdery neighbor in the backyard, right? That's what these nation or these tribes would have been uh, aware of. Look, we've got the, the, the wicked, crazy guy living right there, and at any point when he invades, guess where he's going to invade? And if you know your military history, this would be Poland in World War II, or if you've ever heard any of the jokes about the French surrendering the second that someone you know draws arms of any kind, it's that same sort of thing. These are the nations that were known for being the victims of Assyrian power. Put in kind of crass terms today, they're losers. And I mean that in the sense of they they lost all the war. They they were the losers. They were the ones that couldn't maintain their own military power. They were the losers. They were the ones that were captives and captured. And it's interesting that Matthew, as he begins to explain the ministry of Jesus, in fact, actually, it's argued that the chapter break for chapter 4 should probably have been at verse 13, interestingly. Maybe verse 12, but it's probably a better break that... When Jesus begins his ministry, he moves to the place where the losers live. This is not the king who showed up for the victors. This is not the king who showed up for the winners. This is not the king who showed up for the people who have already have lives that are marked by victory and marked by success, who are marked by thriving in every sense of the word. He's going to say this later, but he says, look, a doctor shows up for the sick. He doesn't show up for the well. And so he moves to the place that would have been defined by the sick. I mean, if you want to kind of, again, get the emotional impact of this, think back for those of you that are a little bit older and and we still kind of told all these sorts of jokes and such. Think of which state in the United States your group of people made fun of the most. Which was the state that was mocked and kind of ridiculed publicly? That's where he moves. On purpose. He he goes to the place where all of the people would have been marked as as being kind of again these, these losers, the the captives and the captured. And it's intriguing, this king comes in to a region that is marked by loss, that is marked by brokenness, that is marked by people who do not live victory in any sort of way. And what happens, verse 16, these are the people that are dwelling in darkness, both kind of physically speaking, so to speak, from their politics, but even more so spiritually speaking, what does he do? He brings them a great light. For those dwelling in this region, that the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Now, interestingly, we find out later in the book, and ruining a sermon from probably a year from now, uh, they don't listen. And in fact, actually, Capernaum is punished so badly it's almost destroyed off the map. Uh, so that when they're excavating it now, they're still arguing over what the buildings are because they don't know. They don't even know what happened to the city. It was so bad. Which is prophesied later in the book of Matthew. It's intriguing that this king shows up and, and he defines this kind of first element of his kingdom and says, "Well, who is it for? <laughs> well, it's for losers. It's not for the winners. It's not for those who've like, well, I'm well, I'm fine, I don't, I don't need any help, I've got my life managed. Just, instead, for those that are like, no, look, I'm, man, I'm tired." I'm struggling, I'm tired of sin, I'm a mess, I need help. Great, welcome home. This is the kingdom of Christ. Secondly, we look at verse 17. He begins his preaching ministry and he begins it with the sermon that, whoo, not popular today, is it? What's the content of his ministry? Matthew sums it up in one sentence. What is the content of Christ preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't really like that idea of repentance. We like the idea of human flourishing. Come, live your best life now. That's not how he leads off. He leads with repentance. But interestingly, what does he explain about his kingdom in that second part? Well, it's not just a kingdom for the conquered and the captive, but it's a kingdom that's here right now, like right now, like right now, so that when he's saying it, he's, he's not saying, look, you have to wait for the king's reign later. He's not saying you have to wait for the king's reign after you die. You're not having to wait for it at some point in the future. The king reigns right now. I think this is a point that Christians, I mean, we we distort often. It's an issue of balance. It's really hard. But to acknowledge that Christ is king, his relationship with his kingdom, it's an already but not yet. Meaning he's already king and he's He's already ruling and he's already reigning. Of course, it's not yet fully consummated. It's not yet fully uh, arrived at. But it is here and it is now and we are called to live in light of that. And Christians tend to make mistakes as we swing toward kind of one end of the pendulum. Uh, we have a thing called over-realized eschatology where we try to take all the things from heaven and bring them to the right now. Or we have a thing called underrealized, which is more of what's happening I want to talk about here. where We have Christians that forget that Jesus is king at this moment. We have Christians that forget that he's king of the world, he's king of creation, he's the Lord of life, and he's reigning even as we speak. And the consequence of forgetting that Jesus is king right now is is massive. Because what does it allow? It allows us to try to be our own little kings. It allows for us to try to conduct some sort of weird feudal warfare with our neighboring brothers and sisters because we forget that Jesus is the one who's in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, I'm the boss. He's not the boss. He's not king yet. That happens in heaven. I've got to live my life the way that I'm supposed to live it now. It shapes how we think about bad things when they happen. Well, if only God would have helped me. He is! He's king right now! He's not waiting until later. He's doing it right now. In fact, actually, he's such a mighty king that he's using the bad things to help you, even in this moment. In fact, actually, we could go so far as to say even using death when that shows up. The scene changes in verse 18 here. In fact, actually, honestly, probably fast forwards maybe better part of a year. But it's a scene change, and Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. That's right where he lives. Uh, he sees two brothers, um, probably not, the first time they've ever actually interacted with each other, again, your best guess, Capernaum at this point is a town of maybe 10,000 people. Uh, in a town of 10,000 people, you've probably seen everybody at least once, you know, just the nature of small-town life. Um, they may not have you know, ever had good conversation and such, so maybe probably seen each other at some point. Uh, And Jesus walks by, and uh, interestingly, Matthew tells us the exact type of fishing they're doing. They're using a cast net, which is uh, usually a circular net with weights attached to the end of it. You pull the center of it so that it becomes a long string, and then you fling it. And if you fling it correctly, the weights cause it to spread out, and it lands out in the water and then falls straight down. And you catch all kinds of little fish that you then use to catch big fish. They're catching bait fish is what they're doing. And as Jesus walks by, he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We find out the third element of the kingdom of Christ Jesus is that it's transformative, meaning it changes the people who are members of it. When you come into the kingdom of Christ, it is guaranteed that you will not remain in the condition that you enter in. Which again, praise God, thinking in terms of Zebulun and Naphtali, if you're, you're entering into his kingdom as a captive, you don't stay a captive. If you're entering into his kingdom as the sick, you don't stay the sick, you don't remain in the condition that you're in. He transforms you, he changes you, he remakes you and makes you new. And it's interesting, here you have these fishermen who uh, we would have marked at this time as being probably extraordinarily brave, that's what we would think of them as. Um, probably a better comparison would be maybe a firefighter today. Jews hated the water, so guys who spent their life fishing would have been heroes and uh, you know, kind of these you know, rough and tumble kind of sort of guys. And here Jesus just walks up to him and says, hey, guess what? It's time to follow me. Now, interestingly, that command for us doesn't carry huge emotional punch because we don't think of schooling in the same format that they did. The the command that he gives them, the offer, follow me, is the offer for formal discipleship. And discipleship in the sense of what happened with the Jews, the way the word literally translated at this time, was to walk behind. Meaning, you, you found someone that was your model and you followed them everywhere they went. And if you think about when you were a child and you went to the beach and you were walking with your parents and maybe you got behind your dad and you tried to step in his footprints as much as you could so that there was only one set of footprints. And sure, they were too far apart, but you did the best you could to kind of model where your dad was stepping. That's exactly what the the idea of discipleship was in this time for the Jews. It was you picked a, a person and you followed them everywhere they went. You copied them every way you could. You became like them in every way that you possibly could. And it's interesting that Jesus is kind of this first wave of ministry in his kingdom is saying to people, look, yeah, these guys are uneducated. They're rough and tumble, kind of sort of tough guys. You know what? Doesn't matter. Come follow me. Be my disciple. Walk in my footsteps. Learn how life works. Be a member of my kingdom. And guess what? Do they stay that way? (laughs) No, they're transformed. I mean, these men are transformed so that just the four that we find out about here, one of them becomes an author of Scripture. They, They all die as martyrs. They're amazing in their relationship. Well, three of them do. They turn out to be these amazing men transformed into the mighty heroes of the faith. Because God changes his people as part of his kingdom. Lastly, fourthly, mark of his kingdom is it is a kingdom of health and wholeness. I love this. He goes throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Um, and proclaiming the gospel. So their way their worship service was structured is a person would stand up and read Scripture, and it was usually a little bit less formal than having someone like me paid to explain the Scriptures. But after they read Scripture, somebody would stand up and explain the Scripture. Jesus, everywhere he goes in that community, uh, would read uh, the Scripture and would explain it whenever he could. In fact, actually, we think we've found the exact synagogue of Capernaum that he most likely was preaching in, which is just marvelous to think about. Proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, the good news of his kingdom, and then showcasing how much power he has. Look, you want to believe the kingdom of God, believe in its truth. Let me show you his power. And so what does he do? He marks it by health and wholeness. Every sort of sickness was healed along the way. And look at just 24 and following. What is described? They brought him all the sick? Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, that's a real thing. Those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And again, remembering the, the level of medicine that's taking place in this time. You don't have painkillers. You don't have basic medicines the way that we do. Uh, epilepsy would have been a life-altering illness because you, you don't have any sort of treatment for it. There's, there's no real cure for any of these sorts of things. And everywhere he goes, he's restoring people to health. It's a mark that he is who he says that he is. And this is where I think it's important that we can again think about God's kingdom in terms of the already and not yet. You realize that when you join the kingdom of Christ, your healing, both physically and spiritually, is never up for negotiation ever again. And I want you to hear that. When you join the kingdom of Christ... Every ill and hurt that you have physically and spiritually will be healed. That is no longer up for negotiation. The only thing that is left for us to figure out is does it take place before our death or after? We never have to worry ever again of will I be made whole? Will, will the hurts inside be restored? Will the, the loneliness inside, will the, the sadness, will, will the, the brokenness of our body, will these things ever be restored? Will they be made right? And it's incredibly important that from the very beginning he's framing out. Look, he's the Lord of life and he's the Lord of health. He's the Lord of wholeness. All of these things will be done. Now, some of them won't be done until the, you've perished and you get your new body. That new body that will never be sick again but he is the God who makes all things new and all things well and all things whole. And so his he, kingdom is marked as being for the conquered and the captive. It's right now. It's transforming the people who are in it and he's healing all of the members of his kingdom. Well, it's pretty fantastic. I mean, that's a, that's a sweet deal. And to think that it's offered to us freely, it cost him his life, but cost me nothing. Uh, There are, however, three commands here that I would just very briefly, in just about two minutes, like for us to just quickly contemplate. Three commands in this passage that Jesus gives to his people. First, uh, verse 17, repent. This is the imperative. It is the message that he gives. What is his relationship with his people? Well, they are to be people that are repentant. As I mentioned in my introduction, I think this is actually going to be one of the longest lasting problems of the COVID-19 season is that people have been allowed to live in their own homes and live in their own heads in a way that let them believe they are their own king. You don't believe me, wait and watch how this body begins to interact with itself when we move into that new building. Start paying attention to just the little bits of friction in your own heart where you've gotten irritated with your brother or sister in the church, where you're harboring that tiniest little bit of bitterness, that little bit of extraordinary selfishness that has been allowed to grow. There's a reason why King Jesus' kingdom for his people is built upon repentance. Because it's a time where we have to say, I'm not the king, you are. And because you're the king, you're the one who gets to determine the rules, not me. You're the one that's in charge. You're the one that's shaping. You're the mighty God. Second command is that of follow. And this is easy. It's to fix our eyes upon Christ Jesus and to follow his path. And this is, I would suggest, the remedy to the first where we've been filled with ourselves and filled with our own desires. Following Christ as the solution because what it's doing is drowning our sin and our misery and our, our struggles with a greater desire, with a longing for Christ Jesus. It's fixing our mind on Christ and letting that push out uh, the, the, the problems that we've picked up along the way. It's reshaping us from the inside out. Again, it's intentionally committing. He's the king. He's the one that's in charge. And then lastly, the obvious one, it's go fishing. Go find others. Tell them. This kingdom, if it's that great, it's worth talking about. And that doesn't mean that we all have to become world-renowned apologists that are, you know, masters of apologetics and challenging people's worldviews. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about, look, when you get excited about something, you talk to people about it. Talk to people about it. Just tell them. That's all you have to do is tell them what you're excited about. Let the Lord be the one who's responsible for how it plays out and how he uh, uses you, but just talk about it. Right? In a world that is filled with misery... In fact, actually, again, as I said, filled with so much misery, the divorce rate is skyrocketing. We belong to a kingdom that's not filled with misery. In fact, actually, where misery is healed. Let's talk about that and see what God will do. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We thank you that you heal our hurts and that you heal them in the future as well as the present. Thank you that we follow in the path of Christ, which is suffering for a time, but victory later. Lord, would you fix in our minds the beauty of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.